Let's pray. Lord, as always, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Normally, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the hymns that are being sung during communion. I just kind of hear the melodies. Occasionally, I, um, in between serving tables, I catch up on a verse or two. But uh, there was one phrase in today's song that you sang during communion that always gets to me. It's a point in which I've always kind of wanted to stop the congregation, stop them cold in their tracks, and ask them if they actually meant what they sang. Anybody have a vague idea what verse that may have been today in a hymn called Take My Life and Let It Be? No. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Stop the music. Do you all believe that? We'll take offering number one. Thought about that. There's another hymn I've always wanted to stop people into on Reformation Sunday when we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, because there's a phrase in there that says, And take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, let them all be gone! Really? <laughs> well, let me tell you a story. A little boy and his mom were in a drugstore, and there was a, a big jar of candy on the counter. Owner spotted a little guy looking at the candy, and he so when the mom came up to pay, he said uh, to the little guy, do you want some of this candy? The little boy nodded his head. And the manager said, okay, stick your hand in there and take some. The little boy just stood there. And again, the manager said, go ahead, stick your hand in there, grab yourself a handful. The little boy just stood there. So the owner reached in himself and pulled out a handful and poured it into the kid's hands and filled his pockets full. When they got outside, the mother asked him, why didn't you get a handful of candy? I mean, the man told you it was okay. The little boy said, because his hands are bigger than mine. <laughs> now, let me ask you. Out of whose hands would you prefer to live? Now, I have called this message, What if I move toward the tithe and beyond? But I could very well have called this message, What if I learn to live out of bigger hands than my own? And that's really what we're going to talk about today. What if we actually learn to live out of hands that were bigger than our own? Now, today's message is relatively simple. This is kind of a clutch your wallet and purse message. We're going to talk about tithing. We're going to talk about money. Got the tie on. Right there, my money tie. Got it from a lady who brought me two ties one time and said, here's one. It had eagles and stars and stripes. It says, preach, you wear that on 4th of July, but wear this one when you're about to fleece the sheep. Well, I'm not here to fleece the sheep at all, but to talk about biblical stewardship. 
And biblical stewardship is really nothing but stored servanthood. It's what God allows us to have to be servants to other people. And I'm not going to share any of my opinions today, but I want to share seven biblical reasons why I believe we ought to tithe. I'm going to show it from Scripture. This is why I pray continually that God's people would all learn to give the first 10% of their income to the work of Christ and then grow beyond that as God prospers. In fact, uh, the other day when I was at a Christ for India board meeting, we were talking about even tithing on the money that we collect. I mean, Christ for India has a budget of about $330,000. Do we tithe on that money? And the answer was, oh, you bet. We take the first 10% out of every dollar that comes into this ministry, and we bless other people with it. And I said, you know, as I've taught this for many years, I've taught about, for some people, the tithe is the ceiling. They start here, and they kind of work their way up to a tithe. It's a ceiling for them. For some people, God had just blessed them in an inordinate fashion to where the tithe is really the floor. And so they can go higher. But there's a third form of, of uh, stewardship that I've always kind of aspired to be a part of. I call it Star Trek stewardship. Any Star Trek fans? Boldly going where no man has ever gone before. That's Star Trek stewardship. Well, let me just talk about these seven ways today. First of all, I want to tell you that um, tithing honors an Old Testament principle. It's an Old Testament principle of how God provided for the ministers that he called and the expenses that they incurred doing their ministry. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of an Old Testament history lesson here, but you may remember that when they got into the Promised Land, God designated uh, land for each of the 12 tribes. But he said one tribe was not going to get land. Instead, this one tribe was going to be given the ministry of the tabernacle and the temple. This is the tribe of Levi. And so instead of giving them a portion of the land, God says these vocational ministers, if you will, should live off the tithes of the 11 other tribes. In fact, in Numbers 18, God says to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of the meeting. So what I'm saying today is that when we tithe today, we honor an Old Testament principle. I mean, some of God's people are called not to do, uh, I guess we would call money-making business in an ordinary sense. They're called to be pastors or ministers or missionaries or minister, ministry assistants or we could even say DCE interns and so on. And so the rest of God's people then, the so-called lay ministers, are gainfully employed and they support these vocational ministers, and the cost of doing ministry. And in the Old Testament, God laid this down as a matter of the tithe. 
Now, I know that there are some people who say, well, this is Old Testament. Jesus never talked about tithing, did he? Well, the answer to that question would be, have you ever read your Bible? Because, uh, yeah, he did. He even actually continued this. In fact, one of his strongest arguments comes in Matthew chapter 23, where he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tithe, you give 10% of your spices of mint, dill, and cumin. Can you imagine taking mint seeds and dill and cumin and counting them out to give 10% of that back? It says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So Jesus endorses the tithing. He says, don't forget it. But it's not as essential as doing justice and love and mercy. Yet one might say that he's only talking to Jews in a kind of an essential Old Testament setting, but maybe so. But there's another pointer, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, some of you are probably sitting there saying, well, you know, the reason he wants everybody to tithe is so because it pays his paycheck. Yeah, your point is what? (laughs) I'm not doing this to line my pockets, friends. I'm just telling you that tithing, this is the way we carry on the ministry of the church. And part of the ministry of the church is what? Seeing to it that you have a pastor who preaches the word of God, who teaches the word of God, who administers the sacraments of baptism and holy communion. It's what helps us to have a director of Christian intern who is here to work with the children and the youth and the young people of the congregation and beyond. And this is the way in which we do it, through the offerings of God's people. Well, here's the second thing. We honor, by tithing, we honor the Creator as the owner of it all. I mean, God owns everything, including our income. Now, one objection to thinking of a tithe as especially belonging to God, is that all our money literally belongs to God. We're not taking our money 100% and giving God 10. Think about it this way. The 100% is God's to begin with, and God is allowing you to live off of 90%. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's why, you know, over the years, my main talking about money is not to focus really on tithing, but really to more focus on what I would call lifestyle stewardship. Because what you actually do with every penny that you have, every penny that you have says something about your view of God and what God means to you. And every penny you have and how you spend it really shows where your values are and what you think your few years on this earth should be spent for. Now, we all know that God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that God declares that one day out of seven is especially God's. They're all his, all seven days are God's, But making one special proves it. Now, this is the way it is with our money and God. Giving 10% of our 
income does not deny that all of our money is God's, but it proves something. It proves that we actually believe that. I mean, tithing is, if you will, a constant reminder that the 10% is yours, O Lord, in a special way, because all of it is really yours in an ordinary way. Here's the third thing I would tell you. Giving away a tithe to the mission and ministry of Christ is an antidote to covetousness. It's an antidote to covetousness. Again, we go back to our commandments. What are the last two commandments about? Well, <laughs> for some of you, it would be a hard question because you can't remember what the first eight were. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a little break. Uh, they talk about thou shalt not covet. And the last two really deal with that. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 12, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, you would never believe that to see how some people live. I mean, they're gathering it up as fast as they can. Of course, that one bumper sticker I see every once in a while, it says, whoever dies with the most toys still dies. Or Chuck Swindoll said, when was the last time you ever saw a U-Haul trailer in a funeral procession? Or there's even a parable that says, you know, you gather it all together, but who are you leaving it to? <laughs> it's kind of funny. When Nancy and I made out our will not long ago, of course, we, you know, we don't intend to be making our kids millionaires or anything, maybe hundredaires. Uh, but uh, we, we just said, okay, if something happens, the money goes thus. And, and I thought my son, who is our executor, had a really good reply. He said, we don't really need anything from you guys. In fact, anything you give to us, we're going to give away. I thought that was kind of cool. They didn't want it. They would just take it and give it away. They would give it away to the places that we've already been trying to give it away to. See, Paul calls covetousness, wanting more all the time, idolatry, because it puts something else in the place of God. In Colossians, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I mean, that, that car will leave you or forsake you someday. That couch will leave you or forsake you someday. That laptop computer will leave you or forsake you someday, but God never will. I mean, see, every time you bring that tithe into God's storehouse, you must deal with the desire of what you might have bought for yourself had you not brought it. See, to give is not to buy. Did you get that? To give is not to buy. And that weekly crisis is utterly important to maintain. We need to fight against this kind of stuff every day. And God has pointed out an antidote. You, you want to you stop coveting? You want to stop spending? Give it away. And he tests us again and again and again. What do we desire the most? The advancement of his name or... 10% more of security and fun and pleasure in our pocket. And what does Jesus say? Where your heart is, is where your treasure is. Here's number four. Fourth reason is almost the same as the last one, but not quite. When we go to the tithe and beyond, as I'm suggesting, it puts a governor on ever-expanding spending. It puts a governor on ever-expanding spending. There is almost an infallible rule. All of you know this. 
Spending expands to fill your income, right? If you make 10000 you spend 10 Some of you go past that. If you make, oh, if I only had 20000 okay, you got 20000 You spend that 20000 It just works that way. That's why a few years ago, I remember picking up a book at Books a Million or whatever it was, and the title of the book, believe it or not, was Getting By on Only $100,000 a Year. See, if you make more, what do you do? You buy more, and the things that you buy have to be stored and repaired and insured, so spending begets spending. Now, the question, now, this makes sense that if you have less at your disposal, you would spend less, hopefully, and most of the time you wouldn't even think about it. Now, I, I'm going I'm to tell you, I spend very little time thinking about world cruises. I spend very little time thinking about forty or fifty thousand dollar cars. I spend very little time, if at all, speak, uh, thinking about a half a million or million dollar homes. But I got to tell you that if I made a half a million dollars a year, I'd probably start thinking of some of those things because they wouldn't seem so strange to me anymore than the stuff that I already buy. See, if expenses almost inevitably expand to fill your income, how are you going to restrain that? Restrain yourself from accumulating more and more and more and more stuff that doesn't have anything to do with eternity. The answer is, as your income grows, we move beyond the tithe. We resolve to bring greater and greater gifts to advance the kingdom of God. That kind of puts the brakes on our spending. I'm going to tell you about John Wesley. You see his name up here, and even though we're in a Lutheran church today, let me talk to you about a Methodist. Uh, he was one of the greatest evangelists of the 18th century. He was born uh, in 1703. In 1731, he took his first-time job and he began to limit his expenses so that he had more money to give to the poor. In the first year that he was out serving as kind of a pastor, his yearly income was 30 pounds. And he determined to live on 28 so that he could give away two. In the second year, his pay doubled to 60 pounds, but he realized that he could still live on 28, so that he had 32 pounds to give away. In his third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he still realized he could live on 28, so he had 62 to give away. In John Wesley's life, his income got as high as 1,400 pounds in a year, but he rarely ever lived on more than 30 pounds a year. It is said that John Wesley seldom, if ever, had 100 pounds to his name. Now, i got to tell you, this so baffled the English IRS, the English tax commissioners, that they investigated him in 1776. They insisted that a man who had an income of 1,400 pounds a year, must have been stashing silver dishes away that he was not paying excise tax on. 
Let me read to you what John Wesley wrote. He said, I have two silver spoons at London, two silver spoons at Bristol. This is all my silver plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many round me need bread. Now, when he died in 1791, he was 87 years old. The only money that he left behind were a few coins that were in his pocket and a few that were scattered on his dresser. Most of his 30,000 pounds that he had learned and earned in his life had been given away. This is part of his will. He said, I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me, but in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. You get that? My own hands will be my executors. I don't need to have somebody be an executor in my will because I will have given it away. He said, I have put a control on my spending for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Now, the last three reasons I'm going to give you are going to go back to the second reading that Jimmy shared with you before from 2 Corinthians, where Paul really talks about giving. Number five is this is God's way of bringing about many good deeds for his glory. In verse 8, Paul said, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, God promises you that when you bring this tithe in, you're going to have all that you need so that you'll have extra to do those quote, good deeds. See, excess money, he says, is for good deeds. Uh, these are the things that make your light shine. These are the things that cause people to give glory to your Father in heaven. If you lay up treasures on earth, guess what? People have no reason whatsoever to think that your God takes care of you. They have no reason to think of your God as glorious if you're just storing it all up down here. You look like you love what everybody else in this world loves, which is stuff. So God gives us excess money so that we can show, really, where our treasure is by giving it away. Here's number six. It's God's way of providing for you. The tither. Sufficient money. I mean, giving is a way of having what you need. Now, that sounds kind of odd. Giving is a way of having what you need. I mean, giving in a regular, disciplined, generous way, up, even beyond the tithe, is simply good sense in view of the promises of God. Now, I'm going, to prom I'm going to premise this by saying, you don't need to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you, but in your own head, answer this question. Do you really believe in all the promises of God? Now, there are some, it depends on who you want to read, anywhere between three to 6,000 or so promises in the Bible, depending upon how you want to define promises. But do you really, really believe in them? Or do you kind of hedge your bets against them and are not really sure? Listen to verse 8 here. It says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. That's a, that's a promise of God. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's kind of interesting. In other words, the generous harvest that's promised in verse 6 is explained in verse 8. God pledges to bless you abundantly so that you will have an abundance for good. 
Now, i got to tell you, I can't always figure out God's economy. God's economy is way different than the United States, I can tell you that much. God's economy is way different than the economy of this world. I'm going to give you just a very personal example. A number of years ago, when I was called to serve Lord of Life, we were asked to move from central Illinois, the northern Illinois, to an area that was much more expensive to live in. But they were offering me a wonderful salary cut. <laughs> pretty sizable salary cut. <laughs> That's probably pretty close to 30% salary cut to move. My wife's thinking maybe even more. <laughs> but we felt God was calling us to go there. And I know that after 13 years, I was making more money than I'd ever made before in my life. And had much more money, and I think Nancy would agree with more money that we've been able to share with other people in a variety of ways. But then lo and behold, about four and a half years ago, you decided to give me the great honor and call me as your pastor at a really substantial salary cut. I'm not going to venture on that one because I'll be wrong. Nancy will correct me after a while, but it was pretty healthy. But you know what? God still blessed us. We didn't go hungry. We're not out on the street. And I have a feeling we make probably as much or if not more now than we've ever done in our entire lives. I'm just telling you, folks, this is just a personal example. And you can say, well, he's just some crazy pastor. Fine. But add this on. He's just some crazy pastor who trusts in the promises of of God. Now, I'm not going to quite tell you that we can't give it away fast enough. But, you know, giving it away. Nancy taught me this lesson a long time ago. I don't know if you remember this. We moved back from Hong Kong. You got invited to a Lutheran Bible translator's <laughs> dinner. Do you remember that? And she came home from this dinner. I'm telling this story. I didn't ask her permission, but I think I got this pretty accurate. And she came home and she said, well, I think I did something that maybe I shouldn't have done. <laughs> Something like that. And I said, what? He said, well, the guy at the end said, if you'd like to contribute X number of dollars every month to this. And I remember my immediate reaction was X number of dollars. We barely had an X number of dollars to live on. And the guy said, well, no, it's kind of a faith promise. Trust that God will provide it. Well, what I remember happening was, and I'm just going to toss out a figure, let's say $40 a month that at the end of that month, I was invited to go out to a little church to speak about missions in Hong Kong. And when it was all over, you know how much they paid me? $40. It's amazing how often that happened. Since my mother-in-law is here, they used to send us checks every once in a while for the weirdest amounts. They'd never send us a check for 50 or 75 or 100 or whatever. They liked to even their account out, so the checks were always like $36.17. But you have no idea how often those checks arrived for no good reason other than the fact that you loved us, you want to make sure I took care of your daughter. That happened to probably end up going to Lutheran Bible translators. I'm just saying, it's, it's a way that God 
takes care of you. Well, that's the Malachi 3.10 passage, too. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then the only time in the entire Bible where it ever says, test me in this, you to put God to the test. It said, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for you to store. This is an absolutely, positively amazing challenge from God. You know what this passage says? I'll be very point blank, friend. You cannot afford, and we, can, we cannot afford not to tithe. That's what this says to me. It's the only safe way to handle our money. And Jesus one time said before, I, I remember this because I, I used to think about this. Every once in a while, Nancy would send me down to the market when we lived in Hong Kong to buy some rice. And what I learned about buying rice was you had to take your own container. And when you got there, and if you said, I want a bucket of rice, and you came home, you didn't have a full bucket of rice. What you had to do was put a minute, and then you bang that bucket down <laughs> and shook it a couple of times, and it would go down an inch or two. It would pack down. Now, what did Jesus say? He says this in Luke 68. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, boom, 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 running over into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I heard a pastor one time says, if you give with a teaspoon, you get back a teaspoon. You give a tablespoon, you get back a tablespoon. But if you back up the dump truck, look out. Now, this is not a guarantee of getting rich. I don't want anybody to think that. I'm not preaching some prosperity gospel that if you tithe, suddenly money's going to come flooding in. God can bless you any way God wants to bless you. It's a guarantee of an abundance to do every good work. And it's enough for yourself. Here's the last one. It proves and strengthens our faith in God's promises. I asked you before, do you believe all God's promises? There's an absolute correlation between faith in the promises of God and peace of mind in giving away what we might think we need but don't really need. And every time you doubt that you cannot live on 90% of your income, you need to stick in the back of your mind one of the glorious promises of God from Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, after it's all been said and done, this isn't me, this is just what the Bible's saying. When it's all been said and done, tithing is really nothing more than a faith issue. Do we trust God's promises really? Now, I would appeal to all of you this morning, trust God. And I say trust God because God will never fail you. God will never forsake you. God will supply every last need you have. Not all your greeds, needs. And guess what? He has already taken care of the greatest need you have. What's the greatest need you have? Well, I can encapsulate it by saying it's called forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Forgiveness of sins, which we all desperately need, we can't earn that. Life, 
we all got a certain number of days in us. We don't know how many they're going to be. Salvation getting from here to heaven, we can't earn that. God has already taken care of it. The great theologian told me the other day, as he shared with somebody, that his ticket to heaven was already paid for and somebody else bought the ticket. I won't mention that great theologian's name, but that's a great statement. You're flying on somebody else's ticket, and you're flying on the ticket of Jesus. Jesus has taken care of your greatest need. And when you think about that, if he's taking care of your greatest need, a lot of the rest of this stuff just becomes that much easier to take care of in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that it, it's a hard message. I'll tell you, I gotta tell you, it's a hard message, Lord, to preach. Every time I ever decide to want to talk about this, I'm, I feel like I should just throw it in the trash and move on and preach something nice. But yet I know that your word is there and we can't just pull out parts of your word that we don't particularly care for or parts that we don't particularly believe in. And I pray today that, you know, what has been said has really been what it is that you wanted to be said out of your word. And I just pray that, you know, our loving response for all the great things that you have done in our life would be to share not what is ours, but to return that which is always yours. To teach us to be good stewards, because money is really nothing more than just stored stewardship. It's stored servanthood. Lord, bless us in what we give to your kingdom. And may your kingdom be extended and your name be blessed. Amen.